you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 11, we'll be looking today at this great chapter of God's Word, John chapter 11, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. So as we've gone through John's Gospel, we've seen many different responses to the person and work of Christ. We've seen great and glorious responses to this promised Messiah, this one who came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, as we just confessed, born under the law to come and redeem his people. And we've seen these amazing responses, this woman at the well who has lived a life of sin and adultery and is convicted by our Lord and comes to confess him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. We saw a couple weeks ago in this man that was born blind, not only blind physically, but blind spiritually, and then our Lord comes to him, opens his physical eyes, but also opens his spiritual eyes, and he's able to confess Jesus as the Christ, the anointed servant of the Lord. So we've seen these great and glorious responses to Christ, but as we saw last week, we've also seen hateful responses to who Jesus is. We saw last week that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews of the day, they don't like Christ. They don't like who he is confessing himself to be as one with the Father, eternally begotten. And so they pick up stones to stone him. And so we kind of see throughout John's gospel these great contrasting responses to who Jesus is and to who he says he is. And we remember as we come to the end of John's gospel that all of this was written so that you might believe, so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. That we would not only see the positive responses uh, of those around our Lord, but also we would see the negative responses and fear that that might be us. But as we come now to um, John chapter 11, we've come to the final climactic sign of John's gospel. Before this point, we've seen six signs in John's gospel, and we come now to this final climactic seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. Many of us are familiar with this great sign where Jesus calls Lazarus out, and we see in this miracle a foreshadowing not only of Christ's future resurrection from the grave, but also a picture of the believer's spiritual resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life and the calling of Christ to his people. And we will look at that in the coming weeks. But the passage that we come to this morning is one where, we, where our Lord finds out that Lazarus is indeed ill. He's sick. He is come under some deathly sickness. And our Lord finds this out from Mary and Martha. And in these verses, in verses 1 through 16, we see a very puzzling response from our Lord. We see a very puzzling response from Him. When He finds out that His friend, the one whom He loves, Lazarus, is sick, instead of rushing to His side we see in this passage that he delays. Instead of healing Lazarus by speaking a word or you know, 
are going to his side, we see that our Lord allows death to take his dear friend. And we're left with many questions. And there's this great confusion, not only by the disciples, but even by his sisters, Mary and Martha, and maybe even from us. Why is this happening? Why does our Lord allow this? But hopefully, we'll see this morning in John chapter 11 that this suffering, this sickness, is not meaningless. It's not random. And our Lord's response to this suffering is not meaningless, and it is not random, but it is ultimately for the glory of our triune God. And we see in these passages the promise of Christ this morning that even in our suffering, in our sickness, in our weary lives on this fallen earth, that God is sovereign and working even in our suffering. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to read the passage, verses 1 through 16. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. Beginning at verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And when Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your holy and infallible word. And we come to it this morning trusting that it is life, that It is through this special revelation of your plan of redemption for your people that we might see the glory and the work of Christ and that, as John says, we might believe and have life in his name. 
not just simply life by being by nature of being a creature, but eternal, everlasting life where we come to live and dwell with you forever. We have our sins forgiven. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that eternal life. And so we pray this morning that you would use your word, empowered by your spirit, to convict us where we need convicting, to encourage us where we need encouraging. And this morning, as we look at the suffering of Lazarus and even see a picture of our own suffering, that we would see your sovereign hand in all things, working all things to your glorious plan and that we might come to worship you for who you are and for what you have done. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we will look at three points this morning. You can follow along with me on your outline if you'd like. The first thing we'll look at is the setting in verses 1 through 3. We'll kind of set the scene for this um, interaction between Jesus, these messengers, and the disciples. Next, we'll look at suffering and the glory of God. And we'll see that in verses four, in verse four. And then finally, we'll look at the sovereignty of God in verses five through 16. So first we come to this setting after John chapter 10. We find that there's a man named Lazarus of Bethany. And it's, it's amazing about John's gospel, if many are familiar with the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's not a lot of overlap between the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John. And so in John's gospel, we find all these unique elements. We find someone like Nicodemus, who's not named in any of the other gospels. We find the upper room discourse, which you don't find in the other gospels. And we find the person of Lazarus, who we don't see in the other gospels. And John introduces Lazarus to us. Now there was a certain man who was ill, his name with Lazarus of Bethany. And so we see there's a man named Lazarus who was ill, and we find out that he's the brother of people that we do know, Mary and her sister Martha. Now, many of you might be familiar with Mary and Martha from the other gospel accounts, right? You might be familiar with that famous story when Jesus comes to their house, Mary sits at Christ's feet wanting to learn, hungry for his word and his teaching, and Martha is busy doing all these other things, and she comes to the Lord frustrated, and he says, Mary has chosen the better portion. And he actually comforts Martha. It's amazing if you go look at us in Luke 10. Martha is distressed, she's anxious, and he says, why are you anxious? And he comforts her, but he also convicts her and says, you know, Mary has chosen the better thing, and many of us are familiar with that great story. And we read here that Mary is the same one who in John chapter 12, we'll get to in a couple weeks, is the one who anoints the feet of our Lord with oil. And we learn in John chapter 11 in our verses this morning We learn of Christ's love for these people, for Mary, for Martha, and for Lazarus, his great love for them. Not only his eternal love that he has for all of his people, but we see here, I think, a particular, a peculiar human affection for them, that he loved them, that they were his friends, that he would go to their home and they would be hospitable to him. They would, they would serve him and he would teach them. And that we see this great relationship and friendship and love that he has for Mary, for Martha, and for his friend Lazarus. But we also learn in these first couple verses that Lazarus, his friend, has fallen deathly ill. 
And this brings us to our second point this morning, suffering and the glory of God. We see in verse 3 that his sisters send messengers to Jesus. He's no longer where he was. He's no longer in Judea. He's, he's far away from them. And so they send messengers to our Lord, and they say this in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. The one whom you love, your friend, is sick. And notice several things about these words this morning. Notice first that they call him Lord. <laughs> they recognize his power, his glory. They don't call him teacher. They don't call him rabbi. They call him Lord. They know his power. They know whom it is that they are speaking to and sending word to. But also notice how they don't demand something from our Lord. They don't demand something from him. They're not trying to manipulate him. They come to him in humility. They know of his healing power, not only of the souls of men, but of the physical ailments of men, of sickness and disease. They know that Jesus can speak a single word and heal Lazarus from far off. And yet they don't come demanding, they come trusting in the wisdom of Christ, and they appeal to his love and affection for his dear friend. And finally, notice this, that it is even those loved by our Lord that will suffer sickness and disease, that will, that will suffer in this life. Even though Lazarus is a dear friend of Christ, even though he's loved by him, he is not exempt from suffering in this world. I think there's many in our day, namely in the kind of prosperity gospel, that will seek to say, you know, if you love the Lord, if you're one of His, that you won't experience any suffering in this life and we know that that is far from the case, and we see that in the case of Lazarus. You could even go to the Old Testament, to the book of Job, right? This righteous man is what the book of Job calls him, and yet he suffered very greatly. He lost not only his crops, his animals, but even his own family and his health. And we see this righteous man suffered greatly, and so is the case with Lazarus. But we see in verse 4, we see in verse 4 something very peculiar. Jesus responds to this in a very interesting way. He says this, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we see here a great promise of our Lord in these words. We see Jesus give the purpose, the end, the goal of this suffering, of this sickness, of this illness. That the purpose of this suffering, the purpose of this sickness is not death, is not the death of Lazarus, but it is the glory of God, the glory of the eternal Son. Two things to look at as we look at verse 4. We see first these words of our Lord. He says, this illness does not lead to death. This illness, this sickness that Lazarus is undergoing, that is, he's suffering from right now, it does not lead to death. What does our Lord mean here? Well, first, we, we all know for, as we look at the Scripture that sickness, illness, disease, suffering are all a result of the fall, are all a result of the fall into sin. Death itself is a result 
of the fall. That if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you would see that God created all things, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things, and He created man and woman in His image, perfect, right? He says it's all good. There's no sin in the original creation. There's no sin in Adam and Eve. They're created perfect and upright, as our confession says, made in the image of God in communion with Him. He gives them this covenant of works by which they are to obey the Lord, to serve Him, obey His commands and His law. And if they do that, they will earn eternal life for them and all those that Adam represents. But as we know in chapter 3, Adam sins, he eats the forbidden fruit, and the curse sanction of this broken covenant of works falls upon us all. If you remember what the Lord attaches to the tree... He says, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And so we see the effects of the first sin is not only physical, not only spiritual, but eternal, that death in all of its forms is an effect and a result of the fall. And that sin not only corrupted humanity in our body and our soul, but all of creation. This is why there are natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, Sickness, illness, cancer, disease, suffering, and death in all of its forms is because of the fall into sin. As Romans 5 says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so we see not only these effects in our own suffering, the effects of sin, but we see these effects in the sickness of Lazarus. But we also see in these words of our Lord the promise when he says that this sickness does not lead to death. This sickness does not lead to death. And what's amazing is this sickness will ultimately kill Lazarus. We find that out in verse 14. Lazarus has died. And yet, even though this illness will lead to Lazarus' death, we see in the words of our Lord that this sickness, this suffering does not find its ultimate purpose, its ultimate end in death, but rather, what does he say? The glory of God. That this sickness, this illness does not lead to, it does not find its ultimate purpose in death, but in the glory of God. That the purpose of this suffering is not death ultimately, but the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see here, not only does our Lord have supernatural knowledge of Lazarus' sickness and the situation, but as the eternal Son of God, who decrees and providentially governs and preserves all things, Jesus knows that this sickness does not lead to death ultimately, but so that, in order that, He may be glorified through it. And what comfort we have here as believers in Christ, what comfort we have in our own suffering, that the same God who works all things for good for those that love Him are called according to His purpose, we have the promise and the guarantee that our suffering, our sickness, is not meaningless, it's not aimless, but it is for His glory. It does not lead to our death ultimately, but our good as we read in Romans 8.28. But it's very interesting what comes next in 
the following verses. What we might expect our Lord to do after these verses, right? He says, this sickness does not lead to death. And we might expect what happens next is for, we might expect Jesus to instantly heal Lazarus, right? As we've said, as we've seen in John's gospel, you turn back to John chapter four, the official son, he speaks a word. He says, go, your son is well. Go, your son is well. And we might expect Jesus to say to these messengers, tell, tell Mary and Martha, go, your brother is well. But that's not what Jesus does. Or we might expect him to rush at once to Lazarus' side, to touch him that he might make him whole, as he's done throughout the gospel accounts. But that is not what Jesus does. And in fact, he does the very opposite. He waits. He delays he tarries, he remains, and it seems as if he does nothing. That leads us to our third and final point this morning, the sovereignty of God. We read in verses 5 through 6 a very puzzling response, a very puzzling part of Holy Scripture. We read of this great love that Christ has for Mary, for Martha. We read that he's heard that Lazarus is ill, and instead of rushing to his side, what does it say in verse 6? It says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When he heard his friend was sick, he stays. The one whom he loved is dying, and he delays. His friend has fallen ill and is suffering, and our Lord waits, tarries, and remains. Why is this so? How can this be? Why is this happening? Why does our Lord stay? His friend is dying. (laughs) We've seen in this passage, his friend is sick, his friend is ill, he's not well. And instead of going to his side, he stays where he is even longer. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is why? Why does our Lord do this? And how often do we ask this question in our own lives, (laughs) right? How often do we ask a similar type of question in our own lives, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I experiencing this? Why does our Lord seem to delay Maybe it's a loved one that you know who is sick. Maybe it's a family member or a friend who is dying or unwell. Maybe it's a suffering that you yourself are undergoing, right? Maybe it's a sickness or an illness that you're experiencing. Maybe it's chronic pain or anxiety, miscarriage, infertility, persecution, disease, marital and familial strife. Maybe it's a suffering that you are experiencing and we cry out to God knowing that He is all-powerful and can do all things and all we hear is a seeming silence. And in fact, the answer that we can sometimes get is a lot like verse 6. When He heard, He stayed. He didn't speak a word. He didn't heal. He didn't intervene. He stayed. He tarried. And He delayed. And I think as creatures, this is often difficult 
for us to understand, right? If Jesus loved Lazarus, if he cared for him, right? If he, if he knew he was sick and he had the power to heal him, why didn't he heal him? Why didn't he go to his side? Why didn't he heal his disease and his ailment? Why did he delay? Or to kind of put it in our own words, right? If the Lord loves us, his dear children, and knows how much pain we experience, and if he has the power to save us from our suffering, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he intervene? Why does he tarry and delay? And I think if we're honest with ourselves for more than five seconds, we recognize that for all of us, this is a difficult question that we wrestle with. The problem of suffering and the sovereignty of God. That if God is good and He's all-powerful and can do all things, why is there suffering? Why is there evil in this world and in our lives? How can there be evil and suffering if God always does what He pleases? And while I think there's a lot of great technical answers, right? You can go to our confession that makes these distinctions between primary and secondary causes, efficient and permissive will, I think we see in John chapter 11 a very straightforward, even though it's not always satisfying our every question, we see here an answer to the question, and the answer to this question of our suffering is the sovereignty and the glory of God in all things. That God is sovereign over the sufferings of His people. That the reason He delays is not meaningless, it's not aimless, but what do we find out? It is for the glory of God. And that just as our Lord is sovereign over the suffering of Lazarus, and because of His great love for Lazarus, and working all things according to the counsel of His will, and for His own glory... In the same way, our triune God is so sovereign over our suffering and has designed it for His glory and our ultimate good. This is where our hope should lie as believers, as Christians. Not ultimately and firstly in our current situation, but in the sovereignty of God that He has decreed all things, He actively upholds all things, He preserves all things, and all things are for His glory and the good of His people. And we see this exemplified in our Lord in the following verses. In this passage, in verses 7-15, through we see that His disciples are concerned for Him. They're saying, you're going back to where they wanted to stone you. They're afraid. They're afraid of death. They're afraid of persecution. Maybe not only for Christ, but maybe even for themselves. And Jesus' response shows us where his hope ultimately lies. And it's not in his current situation and what he sees, but it's in the sovereignty and glory of God. And he uses this kind of metaphorical, almost parabolic language to say, it is still day. It's still daytime. My time has not yet come. There's, like he says, there, are there not 12 hours in the day? He says, it is still day. My time has not yet come. And until my time has come, no one can harm me. 
No one can put me to death, or as he said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. And so therefore, there is no need to fear. I am in control. I am in control of all things. And there's no need to fear. We see Jesus trusting in the sovereign plan. But we see in verse 11, he says this. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I must go and awaken him. It's almost as as if our Lord is saying something like this. I have divine knowledge about what is going on. There is no reason to fear. Yes, Lazarus has died. He has fallen asleep. Death itself has taken him. But as the eternal Son of God, who is the resurrection and the life, I am going to awaken him. I am in control, and even though you do not now understand, this is ultimately for the glory of God, so that I may be glorified in and through this suffering. In and through this suffering. We see the disciples are confused. They think Jesus is saying Lazarus simply is taking a nap or going to sleep. They don't understand. There's confusion. He tells them the purpose. He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. He says, this is all happening so that you may believe. And in verse 16 we see a very interesting response from the disciple Lazarus. There's actually a lot of debate about this response. Is he being cowardly? Is he kind of sarcastically making fun? Let us go. We're going to go die. Or is he courageously and sort of almost in a martyred sense kind of saying, let's go die. And so there's a lot of debate about what is meant here. Is he being courageous? Is he being cowardly? But I think at what the heart of what is why John placed this here is because regardless of whether his response is cowardly or courageous, we see that Thomas is focused on fear. He's focused on fear, whether it's the fear of cowardice or there's sort of baked into his words this fear that they're going to go die. It's like he's not even listening to what our Lord just said, that it's going to be okay. I am in control. No one can harm me. And so we see Thomas here is focused on fear and not on the promise of Christ. And to kind of segue into the point of, our, point of our time where we try to apply this passage, I think we see in Thomas an example of ourselves in our own suffering. Whether it's cowardice, where we act towards our suffering, we, we shrink back, we fall away, or we kind of have this martyred sense of courage where we say, well, it's all going to go down in a handbasket, so let's just go headlong into it. And I think all of those are rooted in fear. At some level, we're afraid of suffering. We're afraid of pain. We're afraid of suffering. And I think at some level, we're afraid that our suffering is in vain, that it is meaningless. What's the point of this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? And we fear that this suffering that we're experiencing is all for nothing that it's all meaningless, and that it's all for nothing. And in this sinful and fallen world, even as believers, you and I will experience suffering. Maybe it's the suffering of illness. Maybe it's a suffering in a different form. But we will all experience suffering. And what the world tells us is that it is meaningless, 
that there is no purpose, there is no rhyme or reason, that it all is meaningless. That we should seek our own comfort, comfort first and foremost. That there is no God, and that even if there was, there's no purpose. That life itself is aimless, it's without purpose, or as what, is our, what does Paul, the Apostle Paul say? He says, if there is no God, if there is no resurrection, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That if there is no God, if there is no resurrection, there is no point of anything. But what does Jesus say in the following verses? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. That suffering, sickness, even death itself are not random, are not meaningless, are not aimless, but are tools in the hand of the Almighty. And it is only in the sovereignty of God in all things that you and I can actually have comfort and lasting hope in our suffering here on this earth. That we all experience suffering and it is only those in Christ that can know that our suffering does not lead to death ultimately, but to our good and the glory of God. What does Romans 8.28 says? That God works all things together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say He works some things. It doesn't say He works most things. It doesn't even say He just works the good things. It says He works all things for our good and His glory. What does Job say? After he experiences the death of his family, his own sickness, he says, naked I came into this world, and naked I will return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though we know in Job that it is God that uses Satan to bring about this suffering and evil, Job is even, and it says in the passage that he does not sin in what he says, that God is sovereign over all of it. Even his wife tells him, curse God and die. Curse God and die. Look what your God has done to you. And he says this, shall we receive good from God and not receive adversity? Shall we receive good from God and not receive adversity? And brothers and sisters, in this life, we will experience suffering. We will experience trials and tribulations, frowning providences that rend our hearts and cause us great sorrow and sadness. We will not always understand why. Why is this happening? Why is God allowing this? Why is this happening to me? We will not always understand why. But for those that are in Christ by faith, we have a hope that is outside of this world. We have the Son of God who in the fullness of time took upon Himself man's nature. Why? So that He might suffer. So that He might die. So that our life might be spared. He came to suffer and die for our sake. And what does it say in Acts 2? That this was random, that this was meaningless, that this was a mistake on God's part? What's it say in Acts chapter 2? That Christ was crucified according to the definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God. That God worked even the suffering of His own perfect and spotless Son so that our sin might be forgiven, so that our iniquity might be atoned for, so that we might experience not God's wrath, but His love as His children. (laughs) Praise God. And so we can know that God is working all things for His glory so that He might be glorified. Sola Deo Gloria. And we can trust in this alone. We can take hope and comfort in the sovereignty of God in all things. And even in the darkest of hours, God is at work for our good. And I wanted to close with uh, a hymn that's in our hymnal. It's titled, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. This is the hope we have in Christ, that even though we will experience pain in this life, (laughs) behind the frowning providence of God, He hides a smiling face. (laughs) Let's pray this morning. Gracious God, we come before you. We come before you not always understanding um, the suffering that we experience in this life. But we come before you this morning trusting in your sovereign plan and in your ability to work all things for your glory and for our ultimate good. We pray for strength and courage this morning and trust in your great and many promises that you are in control, that you do all that you please, and you work all things according to the counsel of your will. This is our only hope in a world full of sin and sorrow, and this is our only hope in life and in death. And so we pray this morning that you would strengthen us by your grace that we would look and we would see that all things are for you, that our life itself is for you, and so that you may be glorified in us. And so I pray this morning that this would strengthen us, it would equip us to live for you in this life, that we would flee from our sin, that we would flee from our unrighteousness, and we would run to you, the one who has done all things for your people even sending the perfect Son of God to suffer in our place, who didn't deserve it, but was, but was placed there to, to absorb the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. And so we pray this morning that you would, that you would minister to us by your word and spirit, you would strengthen us by your grace, and that you would, um, 
that you would meet with us this morning, and that as we go from here, we would live for your glory and by your gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.